0: God of Hellfire, and I bring you fire.
1: Stewed, Glenn Iris, Life from Glenn Iris. Here with my guest. It's good to uh, talk about these movies that uh, aren't often discussed on horror podcasts. I guess it's more kind of like cerebral horror. I guess you would say the art house. art house horror for sure. Try to talk about more literary. Yeah, exactly. And I think who better than you? You know, like thanks uh, for real though. You know, like this these the pi- I gave a list of uh, movies for people to pick from. And you pick the more appropriate ones for you to discuss, I feel like. Uh, like, we're gonna talk about Eraserhead, Solo, which, if you haven't seen, that's, you know, it's an interesting movie. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good first date movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not for everybody, you know. Uh, definitely throw that on on a first date. Um, the Brood and Videodrome, which are both David Cronenberg films. Um, so, yeah, we're going to start with Eraserhead. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Uh kind of starts out like, it reminded me of There Will Be Blood. It's like a whole 11 minutes with no talking. Just kind of uh, industrial noises, kind of. Like I guess that's the score of the whole movie.
0: Well, that was the, an interesting thing in doing a little bit of research on Eraserhead before coming to talk about it, was how uh, influential the soundtrack actually ended up being because... You know, it's one thing if you're familiar with David Lynch's stuff. He he loves the sound effects and, you know, it's prevalent through Twin Peaks and his other movies. But apparently, some people say that this was like the soundtrack um, sort of was at the beginning of like the dark ambient.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's just like industrial noises, like humming of machinery and stuff like that. and uh, Which, for me... I thought it would have been a better choice for David Lynch to go with uh, Trent Reznor as a uh, guy to score his movies than David Fincher, who ended up doing <laughs> that, which I think they, they pair really nicely too, but uh, besides doing the Lost Highway soundtrack, I don't really know if he has much affiliation besides that and the new Twin Peaks. Well, I think it's probably because uh, David Lynch is so sporadic and yeah, making things. I mean, it all depends
0: on if you can get backing for... You know, to make these movies, because for some reason, you know, studios don't want to...
1: Yeah, I wonder they wanna, why. They don't want to pay for Inland Empire, or... That's you know, definitely understandable. That might be my least favorite of
0: his. Well, it's the most taxing. I mean, yeah, it's hours is a bit much for
1: just full-on surrealness. Yeah, know? it's, it's, I don't know, it's a lot. It's a lot to sit through. I don't, I have ADD really bad now, nowadays, especially with, you know, my phone and stuff. Uh, it's hard for me not to look at my phone. That's why I like going to the movies, because it like kind of forces me not to do that, and I can pay attention to it more and like immerse myself in it and enjoy it a lot better. It's just really hard for me. Uh, I noticed it was kind of like that watching this again. Uh, just a lot of me staring at my phone at some points. You know, it's not terrible. Taro- it's not a bad movie. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a slow. Pa- it's very slow paced, and uh, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. Because I don't hate it, I think it's great. <laughs> it's just, it's very interesting. I don't know what do you, what do you think about that? Well, it's it's funny because um, I actually found myself
0: really enraptured by it this time around. Um, it's been it's interesting that all these movie choices, um, they were all films that I saw first probably about ten years ago when I was first really, um, you know, stretching my legs when it comes to like experimental movies and yeah. sort of outlying cinema, but. It was interesting watching this now as opposed to then because it obviously has a lot going on that uh, at 18 or 19 you can't really pick up on as much because of you know life experiences and whatnot. Sure. But, so going into this, my memories of Eraserhead were this, you know, like oh, this is just a really weird and distressing movie, and it's like, uh, you know, you know, I've been a big fan of Lynch for 10 years now, and I've, you know go back to Mulholland Drive and Blue Velvet again and again. And this one has always been in my memory as interesting, but not that much fun to watch. But yeah, <laughs> I actually was very su- you know surprised by how pleasant I found watching it this time. Um, and I think really what it was for me was knowing a bit about David Lynch, who's you know, an enigma in a lot of ways. Yes. <laughs> and I think in a lot of ways, this film is his most personal uh, and I, you know, I think that's what I found really interesting about Eraserhead is that, um, in a lot of ways, I think you know it's sort of his um, mission statement, really, about what he wants to do as an artist. Because when he made this movie, it was he was living in Philadelphia at the time, and he was a student at the uh, AFI actually, and this was sort of his. I guess a student thesis, I
1: suppose you could say. I could see that. (laughs) It reminds me of, uh, I don't know, like, I guess, uh, almost, how do I even put this? You know when you're watching movies sometimes and it's, like, set in a film class and you're watching kind of like a parody of a student film? Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, like, (laughs) a lot of that a little bit. Like, parodies of student films, almost, in its own way. Yeah, but... what's
0: interesting is that you know if you watch a lot of directors first films you know it can be it can be taxing i'm mean, even Cronenberg um on the uh brood it has his second film he made uh crimes of the future and it's it's a chore to watch yeah that and uh have
1: you seen rabid i have seen rabid yes the one with uh Marilyn chambers yeah, yeah. it's that one can be too uh <laughs> so but yeah uh I did notice watching this one too, because the first time I saw it was on a recorded VHS. I don't know where it was recorded from. Maybe you know how you used to could, you know, hook two VCRs up and, you know, if you rented a tape from the video store, you could uh copy it to the other VHS. I watched it on a, a you know, pre recorded VHS and it's like uh I watched it this time like on the Criterion's Blu-ray restoration and it's like adds a lot to it, like mm-hmm. from the first time I saw it. There's a lot uh like how crisp it looks like it's kind of amazing what they could do with that like it really adds to like visually adds to the experience it's a very visual movie for sure well uh, i i have the uh dvd that
0: was released i believe in 2000 of uh, from his his own disturbia um his like that's the way he put out some of his items at the time and you know even comes of like and there's an insert that advertises his brand of coffee he used oh that's for, neat yes
1: yeah, does like, it you still have that in it yeah i do oh yeah. that's
0: awesome <laughs> um and it, it's also inside the uh i have like the first box set of twin peaks that they released on dvd and that's in there as well but one thing i want to say about what i think is interesting about eraser head is that you know he had done a little bit before here but as a first film it's 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 very realized in a lot of ways in terms of his sensibility and style. And one thing that you know it really stood out to me is how much you can see that this was uh, influential on the Twin Peaks: The Return recently. Like you know, it seemed like he really went back to a lot of the uh, the the themes and visuals and some of the um, techniques that he did in Eraserhead. Definitely, and definitely. Which you know, it's interesting. It's kind of a full circle. Um, thing and well it's you know one of the things just to go ahead and hop right into it because i think it's really interesting about this movie is um for those who are i guess not super familiar with racer head uh, the setup is that you follow uh, henry spencer who is played by jack nance and he's this I suppose he's your idea of an average man. He lives in this industrial nightmare, (laughs) post-apocalyptic version of Philadelphia, from what I understand, since that's where uh, Lynch was living at the time. And this character has visions and dreams of these beings that, whether or not they are in his imagination or outside you know the realm of reality is up for interpretation but you know you have the iconic uh woman in the in the radiator crater face and then there's also what you know what's always interesting is looking at the names of characters in david lynch's films because they're always very like exact in their names it's like the man in the planet yeah (laughs) is this you know menacing figure who's at these controls and there's grinding of gears and sparks And this idea, though, that there are these beings that um, control people's lives or affect their lives, I think, you know, it's something that he revisited again and again and again. And, you know, Twin Peaks, in a lot of ways, is rife with his own, like, mythology of beings and entities that, you know, will come into the real world and control or mess with people or just, you know you know, just generally make life more confusing and surreal.
1: Yes. There like, yeah, like back to, you know, bringing a lot of that to the new season, the twin peaks or the, uh, I guess, yeah, whatever you want to call it, the return, uh, yeah, long movie. Yeah. It's just a lot of that, you know, like I'm going to be honest I mean, there's times in it I've had to do research to figure out what the fuck exactly I'm, I'm watching. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it there was a lot of stuff that did kind of remind me of this new season in it. Uh, well, even the tree this comes back uh, yeah
0: you know if one thing if you've seen the return you'll a, a very noticeable absence is uh i believe they call him the man from a the man from the other other places now yeah name was the uh the backwards talking uh i guess dwarf is is that the right term i think I, I so i don't think uh i don't think yeah. anybody well no we're, no one is meant to be offended in this yeah moment. no, no. <laughs> but no uh that actor apparently unfortunately has a lot of personal issues that um he like accused the lynch of Do you know about this no no yeah the reason why he's not in is because he apparently went on this rant and accused lynch of doing all these terrible like thing like abusing like women on the set and like uh, he accused him of like essentially molesting his daughter and like you know oh <laughs> the thing is like no one, like, everybody was just like, what is he talking about? Like, yeah. David Lynch's daughter's like, I don't
1: know what he's don't talking about. Don't know anything about, about. Yeah, about like, this. Yeah,
0: you know, No You know, not to say that, who knows, David Lynch is a saint or not. I don't know him. Um, he seems like a difficult person. He's he seems like he would he's be. married, I think, like five times. I think that...
1: He's one of those guys that, you know, uh, I, I find him interesting, and uh, I'm a big fan of him, but it's one of those, you never meet uh, your heroes sort yeah, of things. Don't I don't want to meet him. I have no desire to. Like, a photo op, sure. I would love to take a picture with him, and that's about as far as that would go. I'm afraid of what I would find out, right. kind But yeah,
0: so the actor did not come back in the return, and so... Dave the Lynch, being who he is, decided well the thing to do would to have this character mutate into a tree. Yes. <laughs> so, but this tree is also in a racer head. There's a uh, quite horrific scene about. It's about like ten minutes to the end, where the character has this sort of epiphany dream of, uh, you know, just how horrific his existence is, and the, the, the image that really focused on is this. This tree, yeah, and it's it's a moment of absolute horror, and that's the tree that you see later on in the return. Was it been like forty years later? He, yeah, he brings it back. Um, if anybody could pull that off, it'd be him. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose, I mean, we should talk about in some sense. Um, if we're going to talk about race, like what is it about? And you know, in some ways, this film is very slice of life in that it presents a lot of domestic situations. It's about the film is in a lot of ways. One, it's about the fear of being a parent.
1: That's what I glean from it. Mm -hmm. Usually like every time I've watched it, anything I could glean from it, there's that's for sure, at least in part, what it's about is, uh, the fear of like having to uh, take care of another human Mm -hmm. and everything that goes along with it. And is in, in David Lynch's own way of telling that story yeah
0: it's that and one of the things that you know i picked up on that obviously i would person. say yeah that's definitely the most obvious one but uh. what, what it really stood out to me was i think in a lot of ways this movie is about um wanting to be a creative person and feeling shackled by life around you because the idea is that he uh Apparently, his first child had health issues. She's a director now, Jennifer, I believe her name is. I think something she had club feet or something like that. Yeah, something where like it required um, an intense amount of uh, care. You know, already being a parent is intense in its own way. Um, But this idea, you know, Lynch is clearly someone who is uncompromising. He does what he wants to do. He's all about his artistic vision. And that's all there is to it, and so for someone who has these ambitions and hasn't had a chance to achieve them yet, I feel like this film is sort of about that. It's about the fear of being trapped in you know these what you know is an average existence. you're married, you work a dead-end job, you have a kid that is all consuming in your life and demands everything and you know it any creative impulses you have are being slowly strangled out of you and your chances to be creative are running out. And so it always, I feel like this film is really about that. And then, you know, you have these, um, you know, you have the the woman in the radiator as sort of this, you know, artistic ideal. You know, it's, it's, it's something that his imagination, if it's his imagination, um, can bring out and can be something that's beautiful and ugly but it's just it's uh, something beyond reality in the same way as the man in the planet we mentioned earlier the man that the gears um it's another way a metaphor for figures of like looking at his existence and so it's interesting because i just i really feel like Eraserhead in that way is a really straightforward movie um and in all of ways, I think David Lynch is actually doesn't get enough credit for this. Is I think he's a very straightforward filmmaker, even though he uses um, a lot of surrealist techniques. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think he's one of the more honest experimental directors that you'll really encounter. And I think that's what makes some of this stuff so endearing as well as baffling. Is, um, like you were saying with Twin Peaks to Return... You know, you say, you, know, you feel like this impulse, like, I need to figure out yeah. what what this means. It's like
1: solving a puzzle, almost.
0: But I feel like, in some ways, I think you're almost trying too hard when you do that. Because I feel like he's giving you everything you need yeah. to know right here. It's like, there's, you know, one of his techniques he always does is, there's usually always um, a figure to ground you in a scene or a storyline. Like, you'll have your Agent Cooper, you have um, Comic Lachlan's character in Blue Velvet... Um, you have Naomi Watts' character for most Mulholland drives who seem like normal, good people who are like relatable. Yeah. And then they're confronted with things that you can't understand and they can't understand. You're as confused as they are in these scenes. And I think that is a really interesting technique that really makes this stuff feel more visceral and immediate. And in that way, I feel like you're, what you see is what you're, and how you feel in a moment is. Exactly what you're supposed to be get taking from it. It's not I don't think he means like, well, if you had gone and read this book or yeah. familiar with this school of thought, then you would understand this scene because I, you know he just doesn't seem to work that way. I mean, you'll see a lot of experimental directors from the 70s and 60s do really tedious things like have characters you know quoting verbatim the communist manifesto or something like that yeah. and this stuff just it's oh it's terrible it's, <laughs> it's it's boring it's not interesting i think even sallow, which we're going to get into is guilty of some of those things
1: absolutely but, when you said that that's
0: immediately where my head went well yeah it's a it's a pretension that isn't there in david lynch which i'm sure there's people who would consider david lynch pretentious but
1: well when you put it that way i mean there's times i have too but uh when you put it that way it's it it's it's really interesting uh it makes it uh seem like especially now when everything is steeped in irony and you know nobody can uh it's almost like just being weird just to fucking be weird Uh, It just feels like his is from a place that's unique and he's actually, that's just how he tells stories, you know?
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, there's, well, there's countless people who try to imitate Absolutely. You know, I'm always, I'm always open to people's impulses to be weird and surreal because, you know, the way I look at it, um, why watch the same thing again and again? You know, when you, you know, the idea of finding something different and unique is, you know, invigorating, so, you know, gosh, I can't imagine what David Lynch was like when you first, at the time, when, you know... Yeah,
1: it's, uh, especially for the time, it's, like, what I mean, too, is just, uh, when people try, like, try to be weird, you know, it's, like, he's not trying, he just, you know, that's just how he tells things. It's, uh, I just find that very interesting, especially how you put it. Uh, it makes me want to watch this again, actually. Uh, uh, especially, like, how you described it as, like, it's just kind of being, uh, Having like life's inconveniences and uh, uh what's the word uh obligations kind of uh smother your creative impulses uh, I never really looked at it that way that's very interesting well, though
0: I think it's you know as someone who um, you know i personally i you know write and I know you are obviously a creative person too i mean it's something I feel like is relatable is this idea of you feel, especially you know, if you're go down the traditional route of you are married and ha- have a kid, you start feeling your opportunities to express yourself in some way that feels significant, you know, running out.
1: Yeah, And absolutely. I feel like
0: that's what this movie is really about because you know, it, it begins with um, you know, Jack Nance's character Henry is invited to come have dinner with this girl. He's been seeing, but hasn't really seen lately, and it's a dinner for family, and it's a really awkward scene. I mean, you can dissect this all day um, for its bizarre banalities,
1: but... Probably my favorite scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> absolutely my favorite.
0: It's the most humorous. I mean, that yeah. the, the the future father-in-law character. He's my manages. favorite.
1: Just everything he says, I forgot exact like, verbatim, it's just kind of like when he's talking about the chickens. Mm-hmm. Just like, just screaming at him from the table to the living room. He's talking about
0: his leg, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, he's just
1: like, you know, talking about like, uh, he got the chickens from a stranger. uh, (laughs) They're nude.
0: (laughs) They're they're 100% synthetic chickens,
1: man made. (laughs) And yeah, and this is like before he even introduces himself, or this is how he does it. Then at the end, he's just like, I'm Bill. (laughs) I thought that was really good. What's interesting is that's sort of the character that
0: Jack Nance would go on to play so well in David Lynch's stuff, is the sort of. kitsch idea of like uh you know you just your um standard all-american figure like you know, father like figure father yeah like the 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 kind old coot yeah
1: kind of thing. And it's just, like especially like in twin peaks is like pete Martel mm-hmm. uh just just it's weird yeah he did kind of go on to like be I don't want to say typecast. cast. I mean, this is really cuz really Jack Nance has really predominantly only been in Lynch movies. That's where I know him most from. He's in all of them, isn't he? Like
0: I th- I think so.
1: Um, I think he is. I know he's like a mechanic in Lost Highway with Richard Pryor in is it. He in
0: Blue Velvet?
1: Yeah, he was in Blue Velvet. What was I, he in that? I can't remember, but he's in it. Um
0: Oh, he was the he barks. Yeah, at, that's him. Yeah, he, that's him. He's at the um the Wonderful Party scene in the Yeah. Movie. Um, another great, another favorite. Hell yeah. I mean, Blue Velvet's just, it's, it's, that and Wilder Hart are his, I think. Those are my favorite, too. They're his is. most fun films. Yeah. They're, they're, the, they're the campiest. Um, I personally, Mulholland Drive, I think, is. That think seems his, to be most people's. Oh, it's uh, just, it's, I mean, there's no other way around it. It's just exquisite filmmaking. It it's really beautiful. is. It, it's his refined style. I mean, it's the right amount of kitsch. Um, mm. like, homages to genres like noir and um, you know, the sort of like this the Hollywood movie. Yeah, um,
1: it kind of grew on me over the years. Uh, it's definitely kind of like his masterpiece. I would say it's not my personal favorite of his, but I do agree that that's kind of like what he had been working towards as far as like his peak work, And distilling his ideas in the most, uh, you know, palatable way. Um, but.
0: To also go back to what we were saying with Razorhead, that the scene that we were mentioning earlier, um, the dinner scene, uh, it is told to him by uh, the girl he's been dating, Mary X, that she's had a kid. She just, you know, had one the other day, and yeah. you're a father now. Yeah. And it turns out the child. Um, you know, anyone who's somewhat familiar with this film knows exactly what the child looks like. It's sort of this. Like the, what are those? The chest huggers from, uh, face huggers from, uh, from aliens, aliens. yeah. You know, it's, it's like that, kind of like a fetus you swaddled know. Swaddled, and it's always mewling, and it's just, you know, it's it's probably the every fear of every parent, like, you yeah, know, just nonstop. Oh, Lord,
1: what is this thing I have created? And it's just nonstop whimpering, like you said, and you know, that just drives people, that that's that's a big thing for me you know anytime I've been around babies that scares me out of fatherhood alone it really makes me and I was um, I watched this movie with uh, my good friend David who actually
0: we watched this movie together first time 10 years ago and it was interesting to watch again because we both had similar experiences where it was like watching a completely different movie but one thing we were discussing was you know I bet there had to have been a time where he had to like take his daughter aside and kind of say like well, this is what I was going through at the time. yeah yeah it's like, it's like, what did you mean by this dad it seems
1: like a, a, a slam on me almost <laughs> yeah, this, this
0: monster that you eventually cut open and yeah kill, but you know and that you know that's the that's the real horrific scene in the movie is um at the end uh this character has basically been abandoned by the his girlfriend who wife or whatever she is doesn't want to. Have to deal with this child anymore, so she goes back to live with her parents, leaving Henry to take care of this kid all by himself. And you know, there's just really just this it is disturbing still. As I said, this movie I enjoyed a lot more, but it still is disturbing. Um, he essentially eviscerates the child, killing it, and you know, this it, it seems really horrific. It plays up, you know, stuff starts coming out, yeah, it's just like you know, and I think in some ways it's him sort of saying that to be creative to to really embrace your desire to make something you have to essentially be willing to cut out those obligations to other people is you're going to have to there's no compromise and you know when it comes to no
1: compromise
0: you know there's no time for other people yeah when it and comes so, to
1: something that important
0: you know which I think we've made you know said you know he's made stuff that we both love, but again, I feel like it must not. He's he's very pleasant to see in interviews and affable and charming, but you know, I don't. It probably is a very difficult person to maintain a relationship with. Absolutely, like he's not
1: going to be there
0: 100% for you, he's doing his own thing.
1: Absolutely, uh, that's interesting. You brought that up because I don't have you heard Laura Dern's interview with Mark Marin? Uh, they discuss, she discuss like, if you're interested in her working with David Lynch, that's the interview. Like she, uh, he asked all the questions I would want to know usually, and they definitely did there. Uh, But the way she kind of describes it is like, it's kind of like what you're saying. I mean, sure, he's definitely, you know, a difficult person, you know, to kind of develop a relationship with. But um, it, it basically just confirms everything you just said. But, I mean... Yeah, I mean, she just kind of respects him as a filmmaker and, like, just goes with it.
0: Well, that's what I've heard. Um, I've seen a few snippets of, you know, when they did the Twin Peaks Return, um, they had uh, a, a filmmaker was recording some of the um, the way he shoots things, which is, you know, asking David Lynch about what he's doing in any moment in a movie is, like, hitting your head against a wall. He's yeah. not going to give you an answer. But watching him work gives you an idea, and... um you know, one of the things is you know, you're talking about how you don't know what's going on in a scene. Well, you know, the actors sometimes have no idea what what's going on. I mean, there's um, Belushi like is in one scene; he's just going, you know, like they're telling him that some sort of simple stage direction. He's just like, okay, sure, you know that. You know, this makes as much sense as anything else I'm doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's a scene with Laura Dern, and the thing that comes off is that she trusts Lynch. Yeah, pimples, absolutely. So she's she may not completely understand where it's going um but she knows that doing what he wants will get results it'll make something yeah. really striking and memorable it
1: always has i mean you know i guess that's really the only way you can look at it working with him as much as she has to um she was talking about working on wild at heart and he uh she's talking about a particular time he got frustrated with people kind of just like not taking cues from him the way he wanted to i guess uh being kind of confused about it and he just kind of broke out was like this is movie is the wizard of oz okay just it's the wizard of oz it's simple let's let's take it now starting now (laughs) and he's just like just like all right (laughs) okay whatever you say man that's what's you know it's
0: interesting about dave lynch too is how simple some of his influences are like the wizard of oz is such a clear influence in um sunset
1: boulevard like lolita Uh, stuff like that. Oh yeah he's just He's very
0: straightforward with this. That's again. That's where it goes back to. I think what's is one of the reasons why I still admire him so. Because there's one thing where you know, there's a lot of things I saw when I first got into movies. You know, and you really open up to, um, especially foreign cinema, especially cinema from like the European cinema of the '70s. And that's like a whole new world. Like when you grow up watching mostly American Hollywood yeah. movies, which is what you know my teenage years were watching every single 80s and 70s and 90s movie um and it's just awesome like you know there's a whole different style of filmmaking that you just did not know about
1: exactly i, I, I hate that i kind of found it later in life but yeah. uh i mean yeah it's just it, i don't really know how to put it yeah, <laughs>
0: it's but, just, but there's a lot of that you can go back to and it's just like it's just like uh it it doesn't you know seeing it again just isn't the same you you know once you get more experienced with watching stuff like that and the thing about him cuz i remember you know it's weird cuz you know i feel like he must have always been popular both and you know it's one of those things where i didn't really know about him until i started watching him and heard about him and then all of a sudden it was you start hearing people talk about david lynch and like you know there's people who love twin peaks you know made a resurgence and so it's one of those things where I can always kind of be skeptical when things start becoming popular again in yeah. some way. So I was, it made me hesitant because so I was like, oh, it's like maybe that means that stuff isn't that good anymore, which is the most pretentious yeah, way of approaching. But I went back and I was it's, like, It's it's completely wrong.
1: human to feel that way too, especially when you. Uh, that's just how things are. You know, like it's just a, a cold, hard fact in most cases uh, that. I don't know what it is about things like that being more popular, but uh in a lot of cases it 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 does kind of I don't know how to put it, I guess wear down on you and like sour you to it almost. But yeah, like with David Lynch it's uh an exception.
0: Deal. Yeah. And um you know, one other thing I just would want to talk about too is I know we start off this, but um the sound effects, we we'll go back into that. Um, yeah you know it's just it's really interesting just how i think deliberate he is with his sound effects and music it's something it's obviously he might be one of the most um aspects that he focuses on the most is sound because you know it's
1: the the whooshings and yeah the 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 dissonant noises and just like humming of machinery stuff like that in this movie
0: Mm -hmm. and i think i was reading about how like apparently that like blew a lot of people's minds at the time. I mean David Fincher apparently was really influenced by that. Yeah. Apparently in seven it shows up a lot. Um, I read that apparently Kubrick loves this movie and like he apparently when he was making The Shining, he would he got people in the crew to watch this movie and he's like, This is what I want this to feel like. I want this hotel to feel like the way th- the, the <laughs> I way did not he, know that. <laughs> the way the way um Henry Spencer's apartment feels like and that's one thing also would like like talk about is like how great the sets look in that
1: movie yeah like they, the uh, set design is better than like stuff like big budget movies and shit like that now yeah, I think
0: I was discussing that with uh David my friend who I watched it with you know it's you know there's nothing you know there's nothing wrong with Star Wars or anything like that and, you know they're they're quietly like, good they're the new ones especially they're well made they look slick and polished you know yeah, you can make. A giant spaceship look believable, and you know it. You can go with it in the scene, but at the same time, it's like because you can make these alien things look so good and and polished, it almost makes them unremarkable. Because no one really talks about the set design of the Star Wars. Yeah. Although they put a lot of effort into it, clearly in designing everything, but something as simple as this apartment and just the details of the way things look on the walls or like the dirt on the floor and this plants like it just makes it stand out so much more and more remarkable than anything you can do with cgi
1: yeah because it gives you this just sense of dread that like you can't really explain i guess it's just you know you almost feel uh claustrophobic oh absolutely it's uh and this movie, like, especially in Henry's apartment, like, it, it, and I imagine he did that for a reason, but yes, like, the set design, like, is very effective in how you feel watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean, I, even, like, you know, small things like the stop motion and stuff in this movie, I think looks better than a lot of CGI, you know, from oh, it looks great, 20, yeah. 30 years after it.
0: Well, uh, I mean, that's, you know, and we can, I'm sure this probably get mentioned again when we start talking about Cronenberg, but... Oh, yeah. I mean the ingenuity. I feel like that goes into special
1: effects like this. The practical, you know, absolutely. That's my favorite. Type, of like that. That's the best way to do it. It's just. It's proven. <laughs> it just. It's so much more memorable. I mean
0: than something that's, you know, you have you put a, you threw a billion dollars at to make it look like this as opposed to, well. We don't have any money, but we're going to make this thing yeah. Look, we're going to make it believable.
1: And it's like it, it takes it, it takes a lot more time to do, but I think that kind of makes it better too cuz uh it look it's just fun to look at. It's enjoyable to look at um and you kind of just know how much effort went into it, I guess. Kind of like it, it has an endearing like atmosphere to it, I guess. Like we're talking about American Werewolf in London uh on the first episode. And uh, they spent a week just doing the transformation scene and how they did it. It's just... Am- if you haven't seen, like, the behind-the-scenes of how they do that, it's amazing.
0: I haven't seen the behind-the-scenes.
1: It's amazing how they a do wonderful
0: it. wonderful transformation.
1: It is. It's the best ever. Like, it's just... It's insane, like, the work and craftsmanship that went into that.
0: Uh, what is his name? Um, he he did the uh, special effects for Videodrome, too, actually.
1: Yeah, um... um Oh, I, I said his I name wrote in the... it down. Yeah, that's gonna. I'm gonna be bashing my head on the <laughs> uh, table when you Rick see... Baker. Rick Baker. Yeah, he's like the best in the game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's still alive. I guess not because you would think that people would be still using him. Uh,
0: yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe he might be retired. If, if he, he could, he,
1: he has to be if that's the case. Because I mean, I could see somebody like Jordan Peele or somebody wanting to use him for something in the future. That would be amazing. <laughs> oh yeah, his his new film's going to be another horror, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's yeah, uh,
1: I'm, I'm, Tim I'm... Heidecker's in it. He's gonna be the lead i think it would be inter- very interesting oh yeah i mean we're we're very
0: fortunate right now i feel like cause we have some pretty exciting um people making
1: especially if you're a
0: fan of the horror
1: genre absolutely that's uh, why I, I like it kind of bugs me to hear people say that it's just kind of like nut, like because there was a, a lull in you know the bush era oh yeah like with the torture porn bush era stuff like yeah i mean it's Hostel's fun to watch a couple of times, but, like, I mean, there's still... There's very, like, cerebral horror stuff, kind of like Hereditary being made now, like, uh, interesting horror yeah, movies. The Witch, uh... Yeah, you know, A24 is putting out a lot of good stuff, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, in the same vein as, like, Rosemary's Baby and stuff like that. Uh, it's good to see stuff like that being made again. Well,
0: uh, yeah, there's been a more appreciation for, um, atmosphere mm-hmm. and pacing that's... You know, it, to me things that rely on the jump scares which i think the first 10 years of this uh you know this millennium that was the big thing was you know you had all the movies that really was the influence of asian cinema was just kind of like distracted hollywood to no end like the idea like well we need
1: to remake all these yeah like the ring and the grudge and stuff it yeah uh speaking of like you know like the, the a lot of those movies are relying on jump scares it, surprisingly this wasn't a uh, a cash-in on using jump scares was a quiet place did you see that i did see that yeah it's a good one time see it in a theater It, it doesn't thing. hold up at all no it's history. not something <laughs> it, it was interesting to watch that in a theater full of people though because mm-hmm. like uh any noise in the theater it was just like people were like just shut the fuck up man like because it's a very quiet movie, but I thought they did it, I thought he, uh, John Krasinski did that effectively without seeming like he was just using it for cheap jump scares, really. Oh, I
0: agree. I think, again, I think the uh, actual world building of that movie holds up under no scrutiny at all, but the idea of having a world where sound is a, you know, gets <laughs> you killed and using the idea of a family that has a child who is deaf and that they would know sign language and therefore have, you know, you know, have one up on other people. It's a, it's a neat idea. It's a good, it's a good hook. And the movie
1: does a really good job at playing with the soundtrack and, like I said, the sounds. It was really good at that. Like, it's, like I said, like, if you didn't see it in the theater, I'd probably skip it. Mm-hmm. But it was, like, for the time when it came out, like, you know, while it was in theaters, it was, like, worth checking out. I thought, uh, especially John Krasinski, who I... Uh, I honestly didn't think was capable of, like, writing and directing, something like that. Not that you know, uh, downplay him or anything. Uh, I mean, you know, people he's... People like to
0: downplay I mean, as someone who hasn't really watched The Office much, it's it's funny how much grief people give him for wanting to try other things. Right.
1: It, it's like, yeah, I mean, he did... I, I like The Office, personally. Like, I mean, I definitely declined in quality after the fourth season, but... Um, it for the time i thought it was really good especially like it was very uh it definitely overshadowed the original i think and i mean i, I can still watch it and it's funny but uh i think it's cool that he kind of wanted to break out of that Jim Halpert. Yeah, Well,
0: who doesn't want to break exactly out of that girl? it's like
1: and i think he succeeded with that i think he's you know cuz he did that terrible uh movie uh it was like i don't know what it was based off of it was it was in the same vein as kind of like uh american sniper where they just Kill like a bunch of Muslims in the beginning of it, oh, and it's like is
0: that. Uh, isn't the one about um 61 hours? Is that what you Yes, you're yeah, that's like it. That? That's yeah. it. I just, I just can't. War movies, just I don't know. It's just
1: what's well, very not uh,
0: particularly interesting to
1: me. The only one I've seen in recent memory that was good was uh, Denis Villeneuve, Villeneuve, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, who's you know, the guy that made the new Blade Runner, and uh, um. Arrival uh he's a really good filmmaker, but he made sicario, which the first one there was no need for a sequel the first yeah. one's great
0: the first one is yeah, is a terrific movie um,
1: I watched the second one where I went to the theaters to see it. I went to the dollar theater, and i about not even an hour in I walked
0: out well the problem with Sicario too is it makes as much sense as making a sequel to no country for old men
1: yeah it's It's exactly all right we're bringing
0: back javier bardem and you know
1: yeah it's just like why do this he's gonna you know he's gonna really kick some ass that's what it felt like it was like because i saw the trailer i'm like why why is this a thing you know and it was off it was terrible it's a terrible movie it's very like felt very like anti-muslim something about it and even though like it I don't think there were any Muslims in it. It, just, it, it seemed like... Well, I think at the, at the beginning there was, because they bomb a grocery store and kill a, a, a child at the very beginning, which, which is kind of like, Jesus, <laughs> right out the gate. But, I guess um, you
0: know that you would do that to... Because you know the first one makes a good point of that you know, um, Vinicio Del Toro's character is a monster in some yeah. way. And so I guess if you're going to then try to make a movie about him being the
1: hero... Yeah, it's you like you already...
0: Well, what he's going up against is even worse.
1: Yeah, and it's like, I don't, I didn't even, like, I didn't feel that from it at all. I was like, no, this just seems like some shit Chris Kyle wrote. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, this is just bad. It just seems like uh, anti, like, uh, ISIS propaganda almost. It was very bad. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you got anything else to add about Eraserhead? It's just, you know, it's uh, solid, I, 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 it's worth checking out. Um, not my favorite of his, but, I mean, you know, it's his first film, too. And I think, how you put it, you know, uh, is a very interesting way to, like, go into it and watch it, I think. Um, well, there's one thing I think be worth mentioning is, um, going back into the fact that it's
0: more personal as other stuff is, uh, I think it's interesting, the idea of women in his movies, because there's, if you notice in a lot of his things the most terrifying figures are always female yeah. in his stuff. Which I think works really well in some of the other stuff because I think it you know, he's balancing it against um these character he's these men who fear the women, you know, it's 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 self aware in that. And it seems like he's talking about this idea of like fear of uh, just fear of being in some way. But with this one it felt kind of petulant because I think he is, in some ways, making a film about his wife at the time. And, like, so, you know, it feels kind of petty when he's making his girlfriend, you know, just want to leave, and, you know, you have this neighbor. Over nothing, you know, like. (laughs) And so I think it's it's interesting that, you know, he went from... It seemed like he got that out of his system in this first movie. Yeah. And then I think, you know... It's interesting because a lot of... I guess really what I find interesting about this is a segue into this idea that um even the most talented directors who are ones who, you know, do all their own writing and have their own style, um, will often make the main character stand ins for themselves. Um, you know, you look at someone like Woody Allen, who all he's his main character is Woody Allen in every single movie. Um you and the thing is with like David Lynch's that first movie that character seems like that is david lynch i mean yeah I think even the hair is kind of him
1: yeah of himself
0: <laughs> but once he did that he moves past that his main characters are never like that they're completely within the he makes them characters within each of the stories and i think that is a, a level of maturity that he reached as a creator that a lot of people strive their whole careers to never get over and so
1: i think that in some ways is really interesting and noteworthy oh for sure but yeah uh, this next film will probably be talking about uh it's the one I took the most extensive like notes on as far as like it's it's more of a film you can like enjoy researching than like revisiting a lot and it's not one you like watch once a year it's uh, not particularly a favorite of mine I find it interesting uh I think it's uh I even would say it's a, an important film like to, uh, if you're like into film like to watch um but it's solo or the 120 days of Sodom and uh did you w- watch this uh <laughs> did you watch the English dubbed version I didn't know um my- good <laughs> it, it really takes you out of it that's why, cuz the first time I saw it was English dub yeah. and I attempted that this time and I was like I can't I can't take this serious if I do the... Subtitles are always the way I'll go with... Um, it's I, very hard to watch with the English dubbing, for sure. I think even some of the actors were dubbed in Italian, though. Yeah, there were, there were moments where they were, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, this one's a little different than the other movies we're going to talk about or have discussed in past episodes because it's uh, not a traditional horror movie, but um, I think... It's horrific. I would, it's horrific. I would consider it horror uh, if we're going by the definition of the word horror, um, because it's just kind of like uh, shit like this. In my opinion, I think happens here now, like with people in positions of power uh, that have that much money. Uh, well, I think it it
0: satirizes things like that. Um, you know, I think I I feel like personally it's, to me it's too the movie's too cartoonish
1: too well yeah, yeah. <laughs> to for really sure. feel like reality or um i just mean the fact that you know you have four wealthy men with all the money in the world that kind of uh can just do anything they want and they use that to harm people mm-hmm. um because uh this reminded me and I, I discussed this with you over text this uh conspiracy theory that there's a pedophile ring in hollywood i don't know if you want to go into this at all um, i think you should i mean you seem like you know a little bit more than i do about it well it's interesting there's uh i don't know everything about it but there is uh if this is something that piques your interest at all uh there's a documentary called a open secret have you seen that i haven't i read a little bit about it after you mentioned it to me um i would say check it out it's uh if that's something that interests you i, I I mean, in this documentary, there are lower-level producers in Hollywood that you wouldn't really know about, mostly for children's programming, that uh, have been caught on tape doing horrific stuff. Um, They send like a child informant in to you know get him to admit it that he did something. I won't go into detail because it's graphic and it's it's really sickening. You know, turn turn your stomach kind of stuff. But uh, you know, there's this guy, and I won't spend too much time on this because I want to talk about the movie, but. Uh this guy named Dan Schneider that uh, did you ever watch you know you, did you watch Nickelodeon at all as a child oh, yeah. you know um, if you ever watched all that mm-hmm. the uh, fatter like the older dude that was on the show like when they do Good Burger sketches the guy that was like the manager I do buck, it, yes as Dan Schneider uh, he has been kind of there's theories about him uh, you know apparently he got uh, Britney Spears sister pregnant uh and has covered it up. These are conspiracy theories. These are these are uh, you know just theories. But um, th- this is interesting though because on his Twitter, which I have seen this, I found it kind of odd because there is this uh, show called iCarly that's on Nickelodeon, and uh, while promoting it, he was telling children that watch the show to send him pictures of their feet with messages to Miranda Cosgrove on it, who is the star of that show. I just think that's kinda like just putting that out there in the open, man. <laughs> just, I mean, it's not a good start. It's not a good start when you have that and if it was just I wouldn't look into it that much if it was like I just feel like that's kinda weird, but like, you know, people do weird things. But when it's a guy like that that has this much you know smoke around them you know it's just kind of odd
0: well yeah i mean
1: hollywood in
0: general is really it's no surprise that it would be an atmosphere that would allow people to be um predatory because you know it's like a revolving door so many people are going in and out absolutely here i mean you know your involvement in hollywood often is as much as the attention span of viewers so you know we are known for we can forget about people very quickly. Yes. So, especially with ch- child actors who often don't go beyond working. As child Actors. I mean, yeah. So, you know, it's it's again, it's no surprise that that would come out or that would be there. And you know, there's, you know, I think one thing hopefully we're we're getting in as a culture is more visibility about things like that. You know, I can't say if that's who knows what we're going to learn from movements like that have been going on recently
1: in yeah. I mean you know it, it's necessary and I'm glad it's happening Oh certainly I mean it, I think it needs to um kind of uh, cuz you know like I don't know what it is about stuff like this but uh it definitely seems like that gets covered up a lot uh just as much as you know like the shit with Louis CK and stuff like that uh you know and it's just, I don't know, like what can you really do about it? Like, it's just insane, like, that much money can just buy you uh, protection like that. It's mm-hmm. just insane. Like Brian Singer, I mean, it's just kind of... Uh, well,
0: yeah, it's, it's always been the weird relationship with uh, Hollywood and the public is that, you know, we turn to people who create things... To entertain us, to make us happy in some way, and you know, we don't want to hear about, the, you know, we don't want to hear about the bad things. Yeah, things like that. and so we're very willing, in a lot of ways, to look the other way when it comes to this mm-hmm. stuff because, you know, you know, I mean, I think. You know, regardless
1: of what happened, Louis CK is a funny person. That doesn't make him a good human being. Right, I think, but. yeah, I think he should, uh, you know, it's not up to, I don't know who it's up to, whether he gets to come back ever, um, yeah. but it's just like one of those things that's so nuanced too, like what do you, uh, he should be punished in some way and I, I just don't feel like, uh, him just not working <laughs> like at a comedy club that puts him up whenever he wants is, you know, that's a different thing though <laughs>
0: no i I mean it's it's interesting talking about that
1: because you know that's one of the issues with
0: the movements of now is where do you really go from here and you know I I, I believe you know I think it's important to hear the voices of those who have been um abused and you know they need to be believed and you know Obviously, someone like uh, uh, what's it, Weinstein? You know, he's yeah. He needs to be out. Kevin, Absolutely, Kevin Spacey, who did you know truly despicable things. Unfortunately, no
1: matter Just, whether or not they're involved of terrific things, they did. He's very uh, not to cut you off, but he's uh, fingered in a lot of this stuff too with the pedophile ring. Obviously, with uh, and I I do like feel like the way he handled that was maybe the most distasteful way to. Mm-hmm. Uh, approach that is to when you have somebody accusing you of uh molesting them as a child you decide that's when you're going to come out of the closet i think that was just despicable Uh, like i mean that's just disgusting to me oh it was was anybody that listens to this podcast knows you know i joke around a lot and you know uh tend to like do things say things that are you know like probably considered offensive but i mean Deep down, you know, I I, of course I don't think this shit's okay. Um, it's just yeah, but it's provocative, but we can definitely, it's just interesting because it this is what this movie the whole time watching it reminded me of because it uh it's a different setting for sure, you know. It's uh it's set in northern Italy during the uh you know Nazi fascist occupation. Uh which I mean you know <laughs> honestly not too different than here now either uh, well i I think um, to really like
0: talk about sallow, you have to talk about it's what it's based off of, which is the hundred and twenty days of sodom and um it it actually it makes sense for us what are what we were talking about before, because you know this is considered technically a horror film i guess in that regard but ultimately it is meant to be as a work of satire and that was what 120 days of sodom was which if you're not familiar with that that is a work by the marquis de Sade, where his name is where the word sadism comes from and i hope if we have a little time i can i'm learning so much more about him (laughs) you, Um, you took very good notes by the way well thank you well um the idea of 120 days of Sodom was that it was meant to be a satire of what the author de Sade saw as the hypocrisy of the French Enlightenment at the time. Um, this idea of people who were, you know, it was who were very educated. It was when sciences were really starting to boom. Um, you know, this idea of people, the idea of the time was. Society had reached a point in France that they felt like they, could, they were really better than ever before and could understand how the world worked and how people were supposed to behave. And so that allows for a lot of hypocrisy in terms of what people do and what they do behind the scenes. And so in a lot of ways, this was supposed to be... Um, you know pointing a finger at the hypocrisy of powerful people and how people with power abuse, and so the very, the basic idea of the plot, what there is of one hundred twenty days of Sodom is that these four noblemen um, in France, one 's a duke, a bishop, a magistrate, and the president, um, which those are used in salo Pasolini 's film, they decide they make a gentleman 's agreement, I suppose you could call it too <laughs> um. Have 120 days of just pure indulgence in all their fantasies. And so they. Which, can- uh, boy, they have some uh, interesting <laughs> fantasies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting you said I'll mention some about that a little bit. But um, they create this agreement to lock themselves up in a castle for 120 days and have their way with, uh, I think it's 10 each, Um, 10. 10 virgin boys and 10 virgin girls and essentially do whatever they want to them for 120 days. And they have guards there who will keep them from getting out. They have what they're considered their studs, which essentially are just men picked out for having prodigious members, is what the sod would say in his writing. Um, and then having this really strict schedule of like every day of the week, they do something different and they'd have prostitutes there to tell stories, to give them ideas for their different for them to play out their fantasies and desires and, and kind of
1: like arouse them, I guess, kind of. Yes, yeah, so
0: that is by stimulating their minds.
1: Yeah. They can stimulate what they do cuz there's an interesting scene in the movie where what you're talking about is happening uh and she leaves out certain details and he gets really angry at her about it. It's just uh I don't know the way it just they played this out. It's a it, it, now that you mentioned like what the book's about, makes me kind of appreciate this a little more that it's kind of a satire of uh of that you know. Um, it kind of makes me like I said with Eraserhead, make me kind of want to go back and watch mm-hmm. it again. Like with that in mind. Well, that's the thing about this movie
0: because honestly, watching it again was you know it was the first one I watched of these when um we decided to do this. Because I knew it was going to be the least fun to watch yeah. again. Um, and, you know, I, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is pretty disturbing. Um, you know, all these horrible things are happening. But really this time, I mean, it's, I think it's kind of a boring movie, really. I mean, it's, there's a lot of things to admire in the composition of scenes. and yeah. The setting. And I think in a lot of ways, sometimes the scenery is the most interesting thing happening in scenes in that movie. Um but it's it's not a pleasurable experience. It is a bit of a slog at times. But it's a, it's an interesting film and I think it's a very misunderstood film. Not that that doesn't necessarily make it um doesn't say that it needs to be championed. I just feel like if you're going to talk about this film, it's worth understanding cuz it was funny. Um one of the things I do just because i'm like everyone else in the world and need validation through social media uh, <laughs> i will post on instagram like what i'm watching like you know tonight
1: yeah i'm watching this it's and, fun you yeah. know it helps you kind of engage with other people that are interested in the same things too but i mean i definitely see and when i posted this one i got i ne- usually never get responses
0: from people but this one was just people just going whoa it's like I can't believe you're watching this. yeah and just like <laughs> oh, don't you know what that's going to be like? And I was like, well, yeah, I've seen it before. I'm actually watching
1: it again. It's insane over the past decade how, uh, because I found out about this my last year of high school. That's the goosebumps uh Timer going off, by the way. Uh I cannot figure out how to... like I've taken the batteries out of it and it still does it. Oh, Maybe yeah. it's haunted. I don't oh, know. A it's, it's <laughs> real horror. I cannot get it to stop. And but man, then, it looks uh, pretty
0: menacing those hands. As yeah,
1: well. it's uh it's great though. I found that in my mom's attic. I forgot I had it. But um what was I saying though? Uh I think fear overwhelmed us. Um, Yeah, yeah. I got so scared by the goosebumps timer that I I lost my train of thought. What were you saying, though? Because it... it, uh, Well, I was saying um, people's reactions to this movie. Oh, yeah. From your Instagram post, yes. Uh, Oh, yeah. uh, Like, it was like my last year of high school. I remember uh, a friend of mine, uh, who, you know, like, uh, also in the film, too, he had recommended this movie um and i had it took me years to get around to it and uh, it's just kind of funny how like i'd never heard of it then a lot of people uh, our age hadn't and it's funny how much like recognition it's kind of gotten in the past decade mm-hmm. you know uh, a lot of people know about it uh even people that haven't seen it like are familiar with that's that's that movie that you know, kind of uh, people. People well, are. Oh, it's it's the bad movie. It's the bad movie yeah. where they eat, you know, shit in it. Yeah. You know, it's like that. That's a big thing that's brought up. And I of. feel like
0: that's to me that's the
1: really one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about
0: it because I just I don't think that's a healthy attitude. Not to say that anyone, you know, by means no means does anyone really need to see this movie. It's not. Sure. It's, I mean, it's one you can know about, and if you're interested enough, it's it's worth watching for its relevance but it isn't something to be scared of um you know the fact that criterion alone released it should let people know that it's not you know this is this is not um something like cannibal holocaust where like they're actually murdering animals on screen yeah this is a movie it's a work of imagination um these are all actors who, like, most of them are models since they can be comfortable with the sheer amount of nudity that's in this movie. Um, So it is a work that's striving to make a point. Whether or not it does it well or whether or not it's misguided is up for you, the viewer, to decide. And I think that's the thing to do, is to be informed if you're going to fill it. Because I just... Knee-jerk reactions are not good. No, and even you know, when it's something like this, I feel like um, you need to understand why you why you don't like it. And sometimes, to understand why you don't like something is to know more about it. And um, you know, I I really wanted to get the chance to talk about this because you know, I'm by no means an expert on the Marquis de Sade, but I think understanding a bit about him is really fascinating because. He was this nobleman that, um, lived in the 1700s, um, that essentially he was just followed by scandals because he was, I mean, he was a pervert, uh, he was wealthy and he liked, he was into essentially sadomasochistic behavior before there was the term sadomasochism, we'll go
1: into that in a second. In drum. we can delve into that a little bit. (laughs) Um,
0: But, uh he essentially spent most of his life in and out of prisons because he you know he had a scandal early on in his life i'd say early on in the 30s he's probably in the 30s um where he he went to jail for essentially he hired a housemaid and then like tied her up and whipped her and then she like ran away and like told on him and he was just like but i mean i like Put salve on your wounds and stuff afterwards it was like you know oh wow yeah it's really bizarre i mean it's not okay if she didn't want to do it but you know very different um viewpoints about how gender relations worked but you know it's it's of its time i guess but even then he was jarring deviant behavior and his mother-in-law actually got a um writ from the king that essentially called for him to be put in jail on site and so he spent a lot of time in and out of jails and you know he was essentially he was what we would probably consider bisexual but there was no real outlet for that at time in any kind of like socially acceptable way and so he had all these tendencies that were considered deviant that just got him in so much trouble and so he ended up in the Bastille for I think seven years that time but while he was in there he started writing this book because he had just had enough of everybody, enough of everyone's hypocrisy and, um, you know, puritanism and prudishness. And he was like, well, I'm going to show you, you think I'm awful. Well, let me write the most awful thing I can possibly think of. <laughs> and so he wrote the 120 days of Sodom. Um, and you know, it was, you know, I, I, mentioned a little earlier the, the idea of like the gentleman's agreement and like the strict schedule. That was what the book is. is like, it goes by a strict timetable day by day. And, um, It was uh, most of it's actually lost because of um, he 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 was writing it in a prison cell and he was actually writing it on toilet
1: paper. So like it was never uh, was it published ever? Well, yes,
0: but this is where it gets this is where it gets interesting. Um, he wrote it on toilet paper and had like it was you know some absurd amount. Like we have about five hundred pages of it, and a good one hundred and fifty pages of that are just his notes on what the book would have gone on to be. He only really did 300 pages of like the first 60 days, I believe, or in detail, like scenes out and the rest are just planned out with his notes. He, I think he might have written more of it, but it just got lost in various things happening because the French Revolution happened around this time. Um, he wasn't in the Bastille when it was stormed, but he had left the manuscript hidden in the wall in his prison cell. And so he had thought it lost. And what happened was this French family found it and they kept it for three generations until like the early 1900s when it was first published it was published by a german uh psychologist or scientist i suppose i'm i i can not remember exactly on what his um, actual branch of study was but it was published for the idea of it was meant to be a scientific text it was informative on sexual anomalies and this was the first time it had been ever published then it was published by several other um, doctors at the time, and this is how it became. Um, we get the word sadism is because it was used as a text to talk about um, sexual anomalies. Because if you know at all familiar with psychology, uh, Freud based a lot of it around sexuality. It was how he first really got into the idea of exploring people's minds, and a lot of the, the you know the things he would cover were the sod had been writing about. For hundreds of years before that, so because of that, that was actually how the word sadism became a thing was look by looking at this text huh.
1: well <laughs> after it was published um so that's yeah. interesting i didn't know any of that <laughs> yeah, i mean and this is that's awesome. very interesting, <laughs> but to go into that i
0: you know this was criticizing uh the french nobility of the 1700s and the social moors but what pasolini did was um, for practical reasons they couldn't really recreate um you know 18th century france so you know he did an obvious choice and put this into the uh fascist italy and so that's where we have sallow and you know i think in some ways knowing that it kind of shows how i feel like this doesn't quite work it's kind of it's a little easy to be like, well, the, okay, well, the fascists are the ones who are doing this.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch, maybe that you know uh, that may, that that's a little and uh, in, more insightful. Uh, that that adds like more to it for me. Like it makes me look at it completely differently because I did not know any of that about like the 120 days of Sodom and all that, like about the uh, guy that wrote it or anything. Um, that's interesting though. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that most people that have seen this know that. I <laughs> <No, no, laughs> you know, but no, I think that's
0: something worth knowing because I am by no means a, a fan of DeSoto. I mean, he's not, it's not really fun to read. He's too caught up in his own um, kinks to really... like. He has the right um, targets in mind. He actually was like... It's funny because as depraved of that film was, he actually was a staunch... Um, Radical in that he didn't believe the government should have any control over people's lives and was really against the death sentence. And in fact, after the French Revolution, he was part of the French government until um, he, he was really outspoken about during um, the Reign of Terror, which followed uh, the French Revolution, where like 17,000 people were executed by the state. He was completely against that. And so the, by the way he's so he's essentially he's against a lot of power from government and so by the way he would address it is by satirizing and making it the worst thing possible which is when you have yeah Sallow and you have these people performing tortures and you know murders that the film builds up to um, for lack of a better word an orgy of torture and violence at the
1: end yeah and it uh you know since you you know explain like you know where you know about the hundred twenty days of sodom and like how it was pulled you know kind of like from that uh it does kind of you know make me look at it a little different you know um cause, I mean I didn't know where this uh came from really you know I thought this was just you know I knew about the book I didn't know the backstory behind mm-hmm. it really, so I just thought it was kind of like I didn't know it was much of a I didn't know it was supposed to be a satire of, of that mm-hmm. really and that that's interesting though um Cause the way I looked that that makes me you know when I rewatch it and like take different notes completely because it's like the way I looked at it was like uh, I guess like well, what the intended purpose was is kind of just to show that like these these guys are hypocrites that are in that position of power kinda yeah power corrupts though. yeah and that's what I gleaned from it which I think was you know a big part of the like the point of it mm-hmm. uh, too but uh, that that. Makes me look at it a lot different, though. I don't know what it is. It's just, uh, it's very interesting stuff, though.
0: Well, again, like I said, I think it's it's a misunderstood um, book and film, and misunderstood for you know. I think we're talking about the movie um, Pasolini when he made it. Um, have you seen any of his other movies? I have not. I mean, I am by no means an expert on him. I've only seen a few, but it's it's funny. Is like he had um, during the later half of his career, it, he had embarked on doing um, literary adaptations, and right before he made Sallow, he made a trilogy of films that he called his uh, Trilogy of Life. He adapted uh, The Canterbury Tales, uh, The Decameron, which is a famous medieval um, book that's similar to Canterbury Tales, and uh, A Thousand and One Nights. Um, And those were all celebrating life, and then from that, he wanted to do a trilogy on death. And this was the first... To be the first one in that and then unfortunately he was really horrifically murdered actually not long after this movie some people the rumor mill is some people think that it had to do with this movie that he was murdered um, that's what I kind of assumed because uh, wasn't he assassinated uh... Uh, it's like you know they don't know like they actually um, for a long time they thought it was because uh, extortionists apparently there, were, there was reels of this film that were stolen while they were making it and the the story went was that these extortionists were like, well, you know, we want this much money for these stills. And some altercation happened, and, you know, this, you know, you can read it yourself. There's no real reason to, you know, belabor all things. But, like, he was just, he, he was excessively murdered. Um, and it was unsolved, and they don't really know for what reason, if it was, in, if it involved retaliation, maybe, from, like, bookies or money i mean it's just no no one knows um but it's you know i think it also adds this allure of this film it's like it's something that's bad which it isn't i feel like because um another thing i think is interesting i think it just adds another wrinkle is that pasolini was actually um openly gay um he was outed actually when he was younger and had no choice but to be openly gay but yeah in a time where. even in Europe not necessarily definitely not like
1: socially acceptable right
0: and so it's 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 really funny to think that you know technically Sallow is an LGBT film
1: yeah <laughs> you <laughs> it's, know it's not it's just, interesting yeah, it's not necessarily um championing uh no absolutely not the
0: the, the uh, it's not it's it's not a positive side of
1: homosexuality or like the sexuality at all it's I mean, almost like on a technicality that yeah. it is but uh yeah, like in conclusion, I'll say this about it cuz we got a couple other movies we got to get to. Um uh, it kind of uh for me magnifies this problem. I, I I don't know if this was also an intended uh, his intention, but um I think that being wealthy uh causes a mental illness that no one in that position can really have, you know, uh You can kind of see it now with most like celebrities, which I won't go too into. It sounds conspiracy theory, like, but if you spend any amount of time on Twitter, it's just like, uh, I don't know what having that much money uh, does to a person. It creates a disconnect. It does, like, like Kanye West, who um, was very uh, criticized uh, a lot because he, you know. I don't have an opinion on it other than the man is surrounded by people telling him yes all the time, and he doesn't, uh, I just don't think he understands what he's do the weight of what he's doing right now, so I don't really co- comment on that part about it other than that, just he's mental, he has a mental illness that, um, uh, he's bipolar, he's bipolar, is, yeah. yeah, and, uh, he just, uh, people don't look at it like that, you know, uh, somebody like that too, like, uh, he, 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 Here's the things people say about them, and when you have like a whole, the whole world telling you that you're a asshole, and then uh, because you you say what you think is right,
0: also calling you a genius,
1: and I also calling that. you a genius, it kind of you know uh, that would fuck with any person, uh, and I think this kind of uh, in a way magnifies that to me. I glean that from it a little bit. Um,
0: well, yeah, I think that disconnect is it's an important aspect of the film. You know, just. Um, i mentioned earlier the set design and um a scenery being the most interesting thing because one of the things he tries to do really is create that disconnect for viewer um every every set is really open and you know there's always horrific things happening in a small portion of big rooms and it creates this disconnect this you you feel you know the, the film doesn't you don't get to know any of the characters in fact i think it's Almost ten minutes into the movies before you actually see what the faces of the um, the four uh, libertines look like.
1: Who were like I gotta say were cast perfectly. They uh, definitely nailed it on that. They, okay, they, they were,
0: uh, I mean, they're completely over the top.
1: They were over the top, and it's just like I can see these guys, uh, just you know how they look. Like they, they, uh, I can see these guys doing that. You know, like this, these things they do. Um. It's just very well cast, I think. Um,
0: yeah, and well, you know, I th- I think... The, I, th- I admire the movie for what it's attempting because it's essentially trying to make an unfilmable movie, mm-hmm. and that's what he set out to do, and it's very ambitious. And he tried to tie it in to make it also personal and that it was about um, Italy and being that he was from Italy. But I just... I feel like he even... I may be wrong but I can I think you can even tell he was sort of bored with the material at the time because you'll notice where there's that scene of fairly early on where um um one of the lunch sequences turns into um a sex scene really where yeah. where the the president character is going around showing his um his butt to everyone in there and asking them right. to look at it and then he starts um he gets mounted by one of the studs. Yeah. But, you know, and it's like, there's also like a rape going alongside of it. You know, it's, it's really a lot horrific stuff. But then the director starts focusing on these um, people setting up like a little fake throne. Yeah. Right? Because like, but it's like, it's obvious he's more interested in the composition of that happening than the actual horrific the thing. Stuff, the bad you know. things yeah, happening around nice it. Thing. I think that just goes to show like, the problem with the film is it definitely is an adaptation of something that is pornographic. And ultimately, you know, it can't be that interesting.
1: No. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's very interesting, all the things you told me about that. I'm, I'm sure people listening are uh, learned a lot from that. Uh, especially, like, like I said, I think most people that have seen it and have opinions on it don't know about the 120 Days of Sodom. I certainly didn't um and i think like you know I, like i think your point was that's very important to know like when you go into it yes. um, which i would agree with you 100% on um this next film i don't want to spend too much time on because i mean it's really i don't know how you could discuss this in length really um it's not counting cronenberg's first few movies before this uh this is my probably my least favorite of his even counting like cosmopolis and his newer ones even Uh, i don't know i can't put my finger i don't think it's you know an awful movie or anything i just for me it just the pacing of it just doesn't work for me um and it's worth noting too like howard shore did the score for this and it adds a lot to it um it keeps you engaged as much as i could Um, You know, Howard Shore has scored over 80 films, you know, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Mm -hmm. uh, The Departed, Silence of the Lambs. Most of Cronenberg's films. uh, I think think they were friends, actually. Yeah, Yeah. they're both Canadian, I think, I believe. I could be wrong. Uh, I know Cronenberg is. I don't know about Howard Shore. Uh, Howard Shore also scored Amy Schumer's smash hit, I Feel Pretty. Oh, wow. Which is a reverse shallow howl from what I could get from the trailer. Very bad stuff. (laughs) I don't know how this got made, but uh, yeah, not worth checking out. I haven't seen it, I can tell you that. Um, But yeah, what what do you think though? Well, yeah, we were talking about the uh, the brood. Uh, Yeah, did I say that? I guess not.
0: It's uh, Cronenberg's third feature length film. Um, You know, when I first watched it, it it didn't really strike me strike me at the time because um, you know he has other films that are you know I think a little bit more realized, but Watching it now, I mean, I was really impressed by The Brood. I think it's his first really realized uh, work where he was taking the ideas that would preoccupy him throughout the next, well, the rest of his career, really, um, body horror, and um, also the uh, abuse of power, and there we go again as a theme, um, by people who are scientists and doctors. Yeah, um, Because... One of the things th- to know about The Brood is that it's based around this idea that um, there is this branch of science called psychoplasmics, and it's it's all a bit actually vague in the movie. Um, it's one of the things that actually I do feel like was um, kind of a hiccup for me while watching this time was that it, this wasn't really
1: explored. It would have been interesting. A little bit more. It would have been more interesting because I thought that side of it was the more interesting part mm-hmm. of the movie. Um, uh, and I do think... I think this whole movie's premise and everything is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think, and I, I'm not a fan of reboots, really, unless you know there are some that are done well. I think this could use a. I think it would be an interesting reboot to revisit this. <laughs> like I think it's just too good of an idea not oh, to. Oh yeah,
0: I mean it's. I mean it's. It definitely has. Um, uh, it's a sexy idea, honestly. When it gets yeah. to it, I mean you know in the Hollywood term, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, the idea is that there is this science. Um, kind of a renegade science that by tapping into a person's subconscious and like their um their problems, you can try to overcome it and the result would be that it causes body um mutations. Yeah. And so this is which is, is goes on into video drum too, the idea of body mutations. I mean it's something that fascinates uh Cronenberg. It's a reoccurring theme in
1: most of his movies. Yeah,
0: and the idea, though, is that with the brood is that by doing this, um, you know, this is a dangerous thing to tackle because you might have someone who, like Nola in the film is a troubled woman who, this, and I seem like she was already predisposed physically for something like this to have an effect, causes her to create um, a new organ that allows her to create... Mutant children.
1: I gotta say, really fucking cool. It's uh, It's uh, wonderful. (laughs) I think it's amazing. uh, And, you know, I'm underselling it when I say uh, it kind of slogs at times. And, like, uh, I do think this, if I were to put it on a scale, like out of like five stars, I would give it three, Mm -hmm. which means it's a good movie. Just not. What about the pacing? I'm just curious. It's just. Got to you. It's hard to put into words, uh, and it could have a lot to do with my ADD, too. Like, with my phone being out, uh, having to constantly check it. It was just very hard to uh, pay attention to, I guess, you, would, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like... Because of everything on paper, like, this should be something, like, I love, you know? Um, it could take another rewatch with my full attention, too, mm-hmm. uh, honestly. But it was just... I was like man I can't even I cannot focus on this for some reason
0: well, you know, I, in the seventies it was a trend for horror movies to be more about um, and novel at the time too it was the idea of um su- they call like suggestive horror and quiet horror um the idea that like atmosphere and the pacing is really what builds up to the moments of when things go really bad um, and You know, which you can see that in plenty of horror movies. But what I think makes this interesting is that it really, I feel like Cronenberg is definitely trying to actually tackle some heady stuff at the time because a big reoccurring theme in this is the idea of abuse and how it carries on. Because one of the things I mentioned, there's these mutant children that this character Noah makes. Well, these children are like these essentially goblin-like creatures that will go out and kill anyone that she dislikes um and so you have them going after her parents who were one was abusive and one was negligent or you know someone that she has a uh, an ex-husband or maybe they're still married it's not really clear and a child and there's resentment there because towards um
1: it's one of those air freshener oh, okay. things.
0: <laughs> um, Everybody
1: does that. You're good.
0: <laughs> the resentment towards them, And just, it just, I think it's an interesting way of using the formula of a horror movie and trying to tackle um, more meaningful ideas. And I think that's really what makes Cronenberg so striking is that he took the trappings of horror movies and science fiction and makes them really unique to what he has to say about
1: yeah, the world. for sure. Um, I definitely uh, think that this is one that is just one of those films where it's going to take me a few times. Because, I mean, I had only seen it for the first time when I got the uh, the Criterion Blu-ray of it. Um, which is interesting, too. All these movies that uh, you pick, too, are uh, in the Criterion collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, only the best for me. Only the best for you. <laughs> like, it's very appropriate. Like uh, you know, uh, I feel like you have a lot of interesting things to say about these, and you have. Uh, but this one, I don't know. Like I feel like it deserves a rewatch for me, and it's going maybe. Ta- it's one of those that's gonna take a few times, and then I'm. It's gonna just gonna click with me. Like
0: one thing I would tell you, I, I mentioned this to you in text, but another. It's another criterion. Uh, Nicholas Rogue's, uh don't look now. Um, starring... Uh,
1: Nicholas Rogue directed it. Yes,
0: yeah. Donald Sutherland stars it. It's a wonderful movie. It takes all place in Venice. It looks great. Um, another one that's, again, s- slow pace, but really rewards in the end. And um, the the mutant figures in The Brood are actually direct homages to uh, a character in Don't Look Now. So, you know, knowing okay. that, I think... Not that that has anything to do with The Brood in terms of its ultimate enjoyment but it's just i think it's another thing that makes it interesting
1: well for somebody like me uh when when it comes to like there's a few movies that are like that for me that have taken me a few tries like something like that is useful mm-hmm. for my like ultimate enjoyment of it like if it's going to take a few times to rewatch maybe to appreciate um i'll definitely check that out with that in mind too um but yeah uh it's just one of the, it's an anomaly to me, man. Because I love David Cronenberg, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Maybe it's I guess for me,
0: I had I had already seen his heavy hitters before. Yeah, the brood I, and that him. has a lot to do with. I guarantee so, it. Yeah, it might be one that you'll warm up to at time. I mean, yeah, I, I think that it's an interesting thing, and I think there's a lot going on. And um, Samantha Edgar is, I think, terrific in it. And I think Oliver Reed, who plays the Doctor, is also a lot of fun. I mean, they're Oliver Reed's a wonderful. He's great in this. He's really good in this. Yeah, he's, um, have you ever, well, you said you hadn't seen any Ken Russells. We were talking about the director Ken Russell earlier, and he's in this this movie called The Devils, where he plays a uh, priest accused of witchcraft. It's very bizarre. It's one of those films that's also um, rife with scandals and um, there's not really an actual way to see it in the U.S. legally yet. So, one day, hopefully. But he's terrific in that he was also in um tommy the the, the rock Oh, okay opera. the who <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. it's when he sings and he's not very good at all <laughs> um but yeah it's i think it's it's good stuff and you know I'll, I'll go to bat for it and tell viewers listeners excuse me to if you haven't seen it check it out
1: definitely yeah definitely watch it you know don't listen to me for sure like <laughs> i mean i think without a doubt like uh there's something there that I'm just not. It's not clicking with me because uh, everybody I know that uh, with the same taste uh, and you know that are fans of Cronenberg love it. So um, that's really all I have to say about that one. Uh, the The next film we'll discuss is my favorite Cronenberg oh, movie. Yeah. I love this movie. It's it's uh, a landslide favorite Cronenberg uh, is Videodrome. I remember first time i found out about this was on some weird uh you know like top 100 afi's top 100 thing mm-hmm. and i was like it was about uh horror movies and you know you had stuff like halloween on there and you know friday the 13th and then i saw videodrome and i'd never heard of it and you know you're seeing like all these really crazy visuals and like practical effects that cronenberg uses and all that. this looks very interesting and i ended up watching it and First time I saw it, you know, I, I, it was hard for me to follow. I was very young, uh, but as an adult watching it again, it's just it's perfect. I think this is a perfect movie. It's uh perfect length. It's not doesn't drag on too long. It it does what it sets out to do, uh, which is just tell a very uh, bizarre story that only Cronenberg I think could come up with, and just I love it. It's about. Uh, a guy named Max Wren is the president of a public access station that basically just airs snuff films and yeah, well, softcore well, porn. It's,
0: yeah, it's a edgy tv it's yeah it's it's your showtime at night all the time right it's just this
1: stuff you know you'd flip through back in the day and it would just be on uh which unfortunately i would i would have loved to have a station like this yeah Yeah, like unfortunately we didn't have anything like that here but you know this is set in toronto i guess uh in toronto like that was you know
0: near distant future i suppose
1: yeah it's supposed to be yeah yeah and uh it's a little bit of dystopian in a feel i mean a little bit yeah um. I, um. I thought that the place looked fun to work for too. Oh, yeah. Like I would have loved to work That's there. It's a nice dick. Plus, his apartment is just. Uh, awful like it's it's depressing <laughs> it's just you yeah, know yeah. you see him eating a piece of stale pizza in the beginning yeah, and it's just he, you know he doesn't have time for things like that i mean we're talking about um definitely not. Max
0: Wren, the character played by um James Woods who is in real life now uh very uh, un- unfortunate because i have to say this is one of the coolest performances in the movie he's like, great I mean, he's you know his character is James Woods is terrific. He's instantly likable because he's like just he's believably edgy. Yeah. Um, he's the perfect blend of like sleazy but also like likable, endearing. He's yeah. like this endearing sleaze ball. I know it's like um, I don't know. It's like, it's
1: like you don't really want to be him, but you're kind of like I kind of want to be him. Yeah, in a way, like maybe like you know when you were like fifteen, you're yeah. like kind of <laughs> want to be him, like but. It is kind of sad not to trail off on this, but James Wood, I mean, as an actor, like, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, not a lot of people go to bat for this movie. Uh, I like John Carpenter's Vampires. I think he's a great. I thought he was so cool when I was younger That's one of, I of That's
0: that. one of Carpenter's I haven't seen, actually.
1: I will go to bat for most of his movies. Oh,
0: I love Carpenter. Just...
1: Even Ghost of Mars, uh, like the Ice Cube mm-hmm. one. See, I haven't seen that one either. I haven't seen much of his later stuff. It's decent. Like, it's not... I mean, when you're putting it up to, you know, his earlier stuff, mm-hmm. definitely not. But, I mean, a funny story about seeing Ghost of Mars in theaters. Me and uh, our mutual friend Wade went with a couple other people uh, for my birthday to see John Carpenter's Ghost <laughs> of Mars. It was the same day, Slipknot Iowa came out. So, we went to get that afterwards. But, uh, Wade... night
0: right there. Yeah, it
1: was great. Man, at, like, 12 years old, you could not beat that. And uh, there's a scene in the movie where uh it's inside of a jail cell and this guy scratching his face off and me and my friend uh alan are sitting there like laughing at it it's kind of it's just really dumb <laughs> and uh wade goes to the bathroom uh air quotes and uh i'm like he's gone for a while and i go to find him and he's in the uh, lobby playing a video game <laughs> and uh he's like he, he was terrified of this movie <laughs> and it's the dumbest like carpenter movie for sure but i like he does not care i'm saying that i've told it to everybody so but it's like yeah not to trail off on that but yeah james woods those great uh definitely an endearing like bag quality to him I and guess. also um,
0: you know i've i had forgotten another lead is in it um it actually has um debbie harry of blondie. yeah for blondie yeah is the for female sure. lead i suppose which when I first saw this, I did not realize. So when I watched this again, it's, it's been about 10 years since I've seen this movie, and I watched it a bunch at the time. But I was just like, oh, wow, it's it's Blondie. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I missed this. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, what, talking about sadomasochism. Um, she is a masochist. Yeah, she's man, definitely... And,
1: um, and Her and Max, I guess, start dating. Yeah, they have a sweet little romance. Uh, yeah, you know, she, you know, he cuts her a little bit. You know, yeah, with the Swiss Army you knife. Know, yeah, they're they're both
0: into it. They're consenting adults. Yeah, and um, you know, I think you know if we're going to talk about Videodrome, we have to talk about Videodrome. Um, the idea of this movie, I think it's, you know, the allure, the um, well, the setup of the film, I think, is really just, um, really alluring. It's this idea of this. Jaded executive of this television station looking for the newest thrill and then he comes across this contraband um, program possibly from Malaysia of this what looks like just
1: bizarre torture porn and, and the room just, looks really like I oh mean yeah, t- t- visually ball, yeah, like it's, it
0: just is really cool to look at and he's just like well I have to have this thing because you know being um, a provocative uh purveyor of entertainment he thinks this is you know it's fake is that's all this thing could be
1: it's funny too like uh not the not to interrupt but like uh he how how much they have to beat into his head that it's fake it's like mm-hmm. wh- what are you not believing about like that somebody would do this you know <laughs> well i think it's it goes on of his character
0: as it goes on um him not being honest with his own impulses because he's one of the things is, as the movie goes on, be, this idea is, like, he thinks this is fake, and he wants to show on his television station, but there's people saying, you don't need to dig into this, this is real stuff, and he's like, well, this can't be real. Um, but... It does definitely help move
1: the plot along, yeah, for it's, sure.
0: but it's interesting, because it's, um... You know, when he first starts dating uh, Debbie Harry's character, you, as far as you know, he's had a pretty vanilla love life, and then she wants to be... She's into, um... She wants to watch this Videodrome tape that he has. And then she, like, mentions she's into masochism. And he's kind of like, really? Like, what is that like? And so he starts experimenting. And there's this whole thing throughout this film, this idea of watching and participating. Because for most of the movie, he's able to be um, objective and be able to say, you know, I'm just watching this. And as someone who's watching this, I have power over what I'm watching. And it can't be real. And I can't be affected by it. Yeah. But the idea is that as this movie goes on, um, it's impossible to not be affected by what you see and what it can do to you and what it... And in classic Cronenberg fashion, what sort of mutations it can do to you mentally and physically. And you have this idea that... Instead... And it's ingenious because, you know, if you're watching this movie... I watched this with my girlfriend and she really thought this was going to Oh well, he's gonna like run into some like actual people making snuff films, and they're gonna get him. Kind yeah, of, and then the movie just goes completely it, off in a different
1: direction. That's what's great about it is it does like that is kind of an interesting like uh, uh, way to think it's gonna go because like it does kind of send you in that direction a little bit, and that's what makes it interesting is it does this complete 180 to where it's like oh I couldn't have even imagined what mm-hmm. happened what 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 actually happens in the movie. There's only Cronenberg could come up yeah. with this. <laughs> like it's just it's very interesting I, I love this movie but and,
0: uh yeah it comes up with this idea of essentially of it's like it's a the idea of entertainment as a sort of cancer that can mutate and, and the, the film goes into like starts going into like almost like its own mythology in a way you only scratch the surface because the film is very tightly made and you stay yes. very close to James Wood's character and his perceptions and that makes the movie all the more effective and works so well and it's like you said it's short um, it's very, format
1: very very to the point and like gets its message across uh without like any fat really mm-hmm. uh i love that about it um i'm a big fan of like uh you know like i'm not understand there are some films that need to be longer than an hour and 20 minutes but like this one the way the fact that it's like you know, an hour and 25 minutes, like just works to in its favor. I feel like well, every scene in it is just so like
0: beguiling.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, and it's very entertaining all the way through. Uh, it's very fun to look at. Oh, uh, yeah, the special
0: effects. I mean, we have to talk it's amazing. about that. I mean, the um,
1: did Rick had, Baker do this? Rick, one? Baker, yes, okay. said,
0: Rick Baker did that. And um, the, cl- the famous scene to me is uh, the uh, the, his television. Starts basically undulating, and yeah. throbbing, and it's like it becomes like it's like almost like this sexual organ that's like it's s- like
1: pulsating, pulsating,
0: and, and like you know it has. Um,
1: that's the first thing I saw of that on the examiner- AFI oh, thing too. And, oh, and I was yeah. like, oh, this looks cool. Like I really need to see this. And you know, it
0: just it he it goes all into this idea of um,
1: singularity. Which are you you familiar with
0: that? No, no. Um, it's really simple. It's this idea of technology will advance to a point where it creates artificial intelligence. And at that point, when you've created something that is as smart as you, then technology is going to go off in directions that are impossible to comprehend. Yeah. And so this is... And it can like merge with humanity. And so this film deals a lot with this idea of what happens when flesh and synthetic will become the same thing and where does that lead you know there's the the iconic chant in this movie is long live
1: the new, yeah. new flash which you know we can't talk about this movie without saying that at least yeah before. you have to say that uh they certainly do uh <laughs> james woods uh says it a lot i do think something about that i don't know why like, it, uh, it's a silly nitpick of the movie but i feel like they uh drove that almost into the ground towards the end not a big nitpick, but just something about it. I was like all right okay mm-hmm. he he said it <laughs> like, <laughs> I think
0: it it works in terms of the film because one thing that's interesting is so much of the film is it's sort of a a mystery because you have James Wood digging into this, what's going on, and there comes to a point where he does essentially figure out what's going on and immediately becomes a pawn he loses all of his own autonomy to do his own actions and in fact the last 20 minutes of the movie is him just doing his what he's commanded to do by various parties and so it just becomes like he's he's almost he's just speaking in a meme at that point that's what you know it's and i think that's really what makes one of this this movie um relevant now is that like what you know the idea of what you believe is meaning and what is actually just something you're repeating or something that's information. What is that information? And, you know, it's, you know, the film ends on a note where, you know, I guess we should say at this point, you know, he, you know, he offs himself and, you know, it's essentially, but it's presented as, is this possibly like him going into like the next realm of, um, of existence because you know, we've gone past what flesh can do, and now, we're yeah, in the world of video um,
1: It's interesting what it kind of like leaves your imagination to uh, with the ending. Uh, this is another one where uh, I have said that this would make an interesting remake to up an updated remake, you know, because it's a lot of dated technology, but I don't know though, I think it works with that better, I almost.
0: think it, it makes it. I think it feels to me as relevant in its Yeah. Like I don't I wouldn't change the scene of it. I don't right? think yeah, it's like it would miss the thing is the remaking it it's this film is so singular to Cronenberg. It's his it's his artistic expression. Yeah. Um that to remake it, it wouldn't be that person's way of looking at the world. Yeah. So it wouldn't there wouldn't be anything to add really. I mean you would just it's it would be like a cover song that Yeah. like which is not I, there's there's no way it's going to really feel necessary.
1: Yeah, this uh you know cuz I was of that opinion before watching it this time and I was kind of like no I just th- I don't know like I don't that changed my opinion completely watching it this time. I was like I don't think that would uh work for exactly what you just said yeah. pretty much. It's like uh just, it just yeah wouldn't be necessary. Uh this is this feels like I don't want to say Cronen... Well, in my opinion, Cronenberg's peak, but I don't know uh, because, I mean, he's made so many great films after mm-hmm. that in their own right. It's just... This is just... I don't know. This is just very Cronen... This is a very the most Cronenberg oh, movie. Yeah.
0: I think it's... Um, if you were saying, like, Mulholland Drive is Lynch's most distilled movie in terms of what he wants to do and yeah. make expressing himself, um, whether or not... Drum is your favorite, Cronenberg. I think it's his most um, distilled vision of what it's like to be human and what it means in terms of dealing with technology and ideas of entertainment and ideas of sexuality and desire and how all this is, is muddling together and can become something horrific or something inexplicable that's impossible to really understand in a state of, in, in any like state of mind that is familiar to what you would think, you know,
1: yeah. Now I think, um, I think, yeah, if you like were to ask Cronenberg, like if you took your whole, uh, film library and there's one movie that you wouldn't change anything about, it would be this one for sure. Um, I feel like if you were asking, this is his most like. This was him being like having nobody come in and tell him what he needed to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, because that has happened later in his career. I guarantee it. Because
0: well, he can't make anything made now.
1: Yeah, it's. Yeah. He, first of all, that, and when he does, it just seems. There were people stepping in on what he wanted to do, and it just th- kind of. I think since the 2000s, I haven't seen
0: Cosmopolis, but I think it's he's, interesting. He's made some commendable things. I mean, I think History of Violence. Is- I love that. I, I think he's made. Uh, I think he has a good track record. Method, I think, quite good. And I thought Map of the Stars was one of the best black comedies I'd seen come it's, out in a while. That and most- came out the same year, and they were both. Um, I think really strong stuff.
1: Most of his uh, stuff is good. Like Eastern Promises, I think, is great. It's very different for him, but I do think it's a a good movie. Uh, But yeah, uh, Naked Lunch is another one that's kind of, uh, I don't know if I would say harshly criticized, but uh, underrated, I guess, maybe. I watched it again recently, and I think it's amazing. It's one of my favorites of his.
0: I've always liked it. Um, speaking of finding out about Lynch, um, it's actually how I found out about Sallow 2 Was uh, when I was, you know, when I was younger, a teenager. You know, you, there's limited things you can do with your time and go out places. I used to go to Barnes and Noble, you know, bookstores. People used to go there and they used to have actual things that are interesting instead of just pop figures and Harry Potter memorabilia. Um, yeah, <laughs> and wrecked vinyls for some reason.
1: Anything but books.
0: Yeah, but they had you know these tabletop books that were about "A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die," and they had an entry on Naked Lunch and the scene it shows is the um the the birdcage scene. You know what I'm talking? Yeah, about? yeah. This is really horrific monster. That's has its appendages in someone's face and it's, yeah it's, it, you know it's
1: he really flexes yeah. his uh practical effects muscle yeah. in that one too at
0: 15 it's just like you know i saw that and i was like oh i have to see this someday. yeah and so that was also had an entry on um 120 days of uh, salad, 120 days i saw him and that's how i found out about that but yeah so when i saw naked lunch hit uh criterion i was like well i just bought that right up and yeah i had no idea what to make of it At like you know 17 or whatever I saw it but you know I've, I've all like, I've, I've read the book it's based off Two Naked Lunch and um, it has nothing really to do with the book honestly I mean it's it's, it's what I've heard that, that book's unfilmable so I mean there's just a couple <laughs> of um, um, things where Peter Weller will like quotes verbatim from the book but otherwise the movie's kind of about um, William Burroughs but it's it's really I think it's just kind of Cronenberg like if he was making his own, like, you know, there's this tradition of, like, H.P. Lovecraft of people making their own stories using his mythos, and this is like, if someone was making their own, like, fan fiction
1: of Casperos,
0: yeah. this is what Cronenberg did with Naked Lynch, and Interesting. I, you know, I mean, if you're looking at a like, straight-up literary um, adaptation, I think you're,
1: you know, you're yeah, so do just
0: a, do something else for your time, but if you're looking just for a bizarre experience...
1: If you want to see just a weird movie, uh, that is visually pleasing to look at, uh, And seeing definitely. Peter Weller
0: used Wells as nice, because, I mean, he's yeah an actor who doesn't really have a lot going for him otherwise. Really?
1: Like, you know, like, he, uh, very seldomly they'll use him correctly, and when they do, it's fucking, or it's amazing, you know, uh... You've seen Buck, uh, the Avengers of Buckaroo Bonza? Oh yeah, that's yeah, he's cool. <laughs> amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, like I said, I haven't read Naked Lunch. Uh, it's worth a read. It's just, is it does it have does it because <laughs> you were saying it doesn't have much to do with uh, the movie doesn't have much to do with uh, Naked Lunch. Does it is the using a uh, 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 insecticide to get high a part of the book because I thought that was interesting. <laughs>
0: Um, I, you know what, I can't remember if it actually is or not. I mean, there's a lot of drug use in it because... I'm wondering if that was just something
1: Cronenberg um, just...
0: Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I I think it might have been actually something he made up, but I, you know, I'm not 100% certain. Because it's um, like a big
1: part of it. Yeah, I mean, um,
0: there's that great scene where Peter Weller uh, huffs the fumes and, or, no, it might have been his wife, yeah, she huffs the fumes and then huffs the breeze out on a bug on the wall and it eyes yeah. and it's dies. It's like, really cool.
1: Oh yeah. What's her name? Uh she's in a lot of Woody Allen movies.
0: Oh yeah, that actress. Oh, I can't
1: remember her name. Mer- uh, yeah, she's she's really good too. Yeah, she's in a lot of Woody Allen stuff. She's in um you know, regardless how you feel about Woody Allen, I uh I I'm a big fan of his movie oh, Deconstructing I've, Harry.
0: I haven't seen one. I admire his films. I think yeah. he's
1: he's, I think a, he's yeah. a classic case of you have to uh, separate the artist from the art. Absolutely. There's some you can with, and there's just some, you know, uh, like Bill Co- I, Well, I haven't, I've never been a fan of Bill Cosby, but I guess, I don't know. I can't think of an example where uh, I can't separate the artist from well, the art. It might be easier
0: once he's dead. Um, that's yeah, actually, yeah. I have discussed that with people. Um, you know, what do you do with problematic people? Like Marquis de Saad, if you were a fan, he's an issue. Because, I mean, if he was alive today, he probably would be someone who's being outed by the Me Too. I mean, he wasn't particularly yeah. a pleasant person. He's it's interesting. That's
1: where my head went when you said some of the right. stuff he'd done. Uh, that's interesting that got brought up, because I read something uh, <laughs> recently. Uh, there's a comedian uh, that used to tour with Louis C.K. named Ted Alexandra. And uh, he's been known to be part of, like, uh, he was part of, uh, had, like, uh, you know, protested during the Occupy movement. Uh, he's very he's, he's an activist on top of being a comedian, very politically active. Uh, and he just had a special come out, so he was promoting it. And uh, he was asked a question about... Because um, he just had a set go viral where he criticized Louis C.K. pretty fairly, I thought. And um, he was asked, can you separate an artist from or from their art, like Bill Cosby, for example. And his answer was one of the most interesting answers I've heard. Because he personally said he cannot... Uh, especially with Bill Cosby as an example because his words were um, when you're given like that platform to uh, where people are listening to your opinions on things uh, and you betray their trust like that, it's hard to take you serious really and and, and, and validate your opinions as opposed to someone who is respected and like squeaky clean you know Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean I think that would that it's hard to apply that to everything, though. Like, because Bill Cosby, sure, Louis C.K., sure, uh, but like Woody Allen, I, you couldn't really apply that to because uh, it's a different platform, you know.
0: Well, you know, I'm I'm a firm
1: believer in. I do think it's a good answer, though. For the record, mm-hmm. uh, It is the best answer I've heard for somebody being asked that question.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you know once someone creates something and puts it out there, it's no longer theirs really anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something for obviously they created it and, you know there is that, but they don't really matter anymore. I think it's 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 considered a fallacy when you try to read too much of the personal into something because, you know, there's I'm a believer in the idea that um art is no matter who the person is, if they make a meaningful work of art, that's their best self. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, that's why you don't, you know, people when you're younger, if you hear a band you like or read a book you love, and you're like, oh, I wish I could just be friends with this person. You don't, you, you want to be friends with the book, the movie, and I don't... Yeah. Think, like, you know, I ran into this problem recently with uh, the band Swans. So, you know, I, I came to them late in the game, and I love their music, but their singer um it was actually a little bit before the me too movement really got going he was kind of a proto me too movement call yeah. out um, you know i mean it definitely has an effect i mean i'm you know i am not like in a complete ivory tower when it comes to saying that i mean you know i used to wear It's very nuanced shirt. you know like i don't wear my swan shirt anymore i
1: don't really feel comfortable doing that
0: Sure yeah you know, it's I i don't really listen to them that much anymore cuz it sours it but
1: it definitely does it's it's such a nuanced topic to where it's like it's not, in a lot of cases, it's not black and white when it comes to you separating them from their art. Uh, there's very, there's plenty of gray areas. Like, you know, like, for example, like I said, the Bill Cosby thing, that's pretty, for me personally, black and white, because he is kind of a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite, you yeah. know. he, he America's uh, dad. He's America's dad. He, uh, you know, had a lot of opinions that were wholesome mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, criticized people that, that didn't share those opinions really and I feel like he betrayed that, well, that completely is, that is a nuance because it'd be one thing if
0: he was someone he was just putting out these movies or he recorded these stand-ups and then left when and it's like you know, leave me alone and I'm reclusive but when you present yourself as a public figure that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, a, that's separate from the art that's like you've become you are, you're, you've become part of the public realm in that regard as well it's a separate sort of art form I suppose absolutely so yes if when you create yourself this image of you are someone to be trusted and then you betray that trust then you know you get everything that has you have coming towards you I think you know there's no I mean you know I'm not someone who I don't know I don't feel comfortable wishing bad things on anyone or being someone who's in judgment of what should happen to someone But I think you know, if you know when things, you know, if the fact that he has end up in prison, well, he only has himself to blame for that.
1: Absolutely, you know, and Um, that's
0: that's how I feel about that.
1: It's funny how that (laughs) video drum went to that, but I mean, that's how conversations work, I suppose, though. But yeah, it's been good, man. This is one of the like more insightful episodes for sure. Um, Uh, Thanks for for doing it, man. This was very, uh, very enjoyable. Uh, I've learned a lot, uh, and yeah, man, we should do this again sometime. Uh, I've, I've liked doing this series, honestly. It's a, a lot different from the, the normal episodes I do, which are not as pre-planned. So yeah, man, we should definitely do this again if you'd be down for it. Uh, I'm always down to watch movies. Yeah, man, it, it's it's <laughs> it comes naturally, you know. It's just something I do anyway, but yeah, man, thanks for doing it.